sweeping new restrictions. This is done with a heavy heart, but it's done with a resolute purpose. The province prepares for road checks to stop non-essential travel. Growing pressure on hospitals. Nothing prepares for this. It takes you so so friggin' low. Some are reaching capacity with younger and younger patients. And can't stop the party. They're obviously just as frustrated with the behavior of this small minority. Why police haven't cracked down on COVID rule breakers. You're watching Global BC. This is Global News Hour at 6. Good evening and thanks for joining us. Sophie is off tonight. We begin with breaking COVID-19 developments in this province. The B.C. government taking more drastic action. And by the end of the week, non-essential travel between health regions could be subject to fines. Global's Richard Zussman is live in Victoria with the details tonight. Richard. Victoria's Inner Harbour, Chris, is an extremely popular tourist destination and the province is now telling people to stay away and if they don't take the advice, they will put in orders to make sure it happens. Travel crackdown. We need to all put our efforts into combating this virus. BC government announcing widespread new restrictions, the ban on social gatherings, events, indoor dining and indoor group adult fitness, will continue until through the May long weekend. It is critical that we focus our efforts on continuing to do the things that we know reduce transmission. The travel restrictions will be outlined in detail. Friday, the Premier preparing British Columbians for a change. There's going to be no non-essential travel outside health authority, and there will be random police checks to make sure people are following the guidelines. This will be conducted through random audits, not unlike uh, roadside uh, stops for a counterattack during the Christmas season. They will be susceptible to all travelers, not just a few travelers. And again, they will be random. The province working with hotels and accommodations industry to make sure bookings are canceled and not accepted from people outside the region. And signs will go up along the BC-Alberta border telling people to turn around if the trip is non-essential. At this point, non-essential travel should be confined to local travel only. I'm confident that most British Columbians want to follow that order. BC waiting to finalize the orders in part to avoid what happened in Ontario, where the public and police rejected changes to authority that could have easily led to visible minorities being targeted. We will be uh, consulting with the BIPOC community to make sure that we bring forward these restrictions in a way that does not uh, give anyone fear that there will be additional repercussions. This is about travel. Starting soon, there will be no trailers and campers on BC ferries. The ferries will also not be putting on extra sailings for the May long weekend. And those with existing reservations or someone asking to make one will be asked if the trip is essential. Our appeal to people is to do the right thing and to stay home. Do not plan a holiday until after the May long weekend. The province's circuit breaker is starting to work. Daily average cases are bending downwards after a two-week climb, but hospitalization still going up. Once again, a new record. 303 people in hospital March 22nd, 441 across the province in hospital now. Our whole attempts now to focus more on preventing um, people from moving about um, is because we've seen that it is the travel between regions that can spread this. 
And the reason why these restrictions are going to be in place, Chris, through the May long weekend. First, the May long weekend is a popular time for people to travel. The province wants to prevent that. But almost more importantly, the province says that they will get to 60% vaccination by that weekend. And that is a point that's important based on what we've seen other places in the world when we start seeing cases go down solely because of vaccine immunity. And that's what the province is targeting to get at, is trying to give itself some clear space to get there. A lot of people will be disappointed because it looks absolutely beautiful behind you in the harbor there, Richard. Thanks very much for the report uh, on the topic of vaccines. If you've been patiently waiting, your chances of getting a COVID shot just got a lot better. The province announcing today that it's expanding the availability of the AstraZeneca vaccine to a much larger age group. And as Aaron MacArthur reports, despite some concerns, the move is getting the thumbs up from doctors. On a day when the reality of the third wave was made clear, more British Columbians are now eligible to book a vaccine appointment. The AstraZeneca shot available to everyone over 40, with particular emphasis on hotspot communities. These highest priority communities have been identified by uh, the data that we've been collecting at the BC CDC that allows us to understand where the highest transmission risk is happening and where the immunization rates um, are lower. The hotspot communities largely in Fraser Health, with two regions in Vancouver Coastal added, plus Dawson Creek. BC waiting until mid-afternoon to announce the changes, following other provinces which acted over the weekend without approval from the National Advisory Council on Immunization. Doctors who had been calling for a lowered age restrictions say this is what BC needs. It's a, it's a great decision. I mean, a few of us were getting antsy out here is that Hey, the, you know, the, the longer we take on this, the harder it will be to convince people to take it. The risk of a blood clot from the AstraZeneca vaccine, extraordinarily low. Four in a million. Yet hesitancy remains an issue for this particular brand. Real-world data shows the vaccine is just as effective as a single dose of Pfizer. Doctors continue to say, take the first shot you were offered. Um, for example, my sister is eligible to get the AstraZeneca vaccine. She could wait a couple more weeks to find out when she can book her vaccine, the Pfizer and Moderna. But I told her, it's so prevalent, your risk is higher just not getting vaccinated. AstraZeneca still makes up just a small percentage of the vaccine available. But every shot putting BC farther down the road towards the end of the pandemic. Aaron MacArthur, Global News. Until then, let's take a look at the numbers. Again, this is for three counting periods over the weekend. We have 2,960 new cases, bringing BC's total to more than 120,000, with 9,353 of those cases active. 441 people are in hospital now, 138 of those in the ICU. 14,711 people are in self-isolation, and sadly, eight more people died due to COVID-19. Keith Baldry is live in Victoria again for us tonight. We learned today one of those most recent deaths, Keith, is just a toddler. Yes, a child under the age of two uh, today was announced that uh, had died of COVID-19, died in Children's Hospital, uh, being treated for an underlying uh, health condition. We don't have any other information other than that. Of course, that is the younger per youngest person ever to die of COVID-19 in this pandemic. In fact, in BC and probably in Canada as well, Dr. Bonnie Henry making that emo uh, announcement today with some emotion. It is an unusual event. It is a true 
tragedy, and it's a reflection of the impact that this virus is having across our communities. This was a, unfortunately a child who was not in, in care. Um, they had a number of health issues. They received the best possible care they could at, at Children's Hospital, and uh, unfortunately uh, um, COVID took their lives. Incredibly sad for that family, obviously. Mm -hmm. Keith and our thoughts are with them. Um, in the search for some good news today, uh, I know that you've got to look at sort of an overall look at the vaccination picture, and that does include a reason to be positive here. Yeah, the numbers are going to look a little better on vaccination. They look great right now. You know, we're more than 30% of our target. Uh, but it's always been sort of a hit and miss in terms of when the vaccines arrive. But again, right now, we've got more than 300,000 doses in our current inventory. Uh, but the good news is Pfizer is now going to double their weekly shipments starting in May to 275,000 doses a week. That's more than a million in one month. And 40% of our vaccine target is supposed to be met by the end of uh, April. So this is very good news that Pfizer are stepping up very much our workhorse vaccine we don't know when moderna is going to arrive so it's not being counted on astrazeneca as aaron pointed out is going to start to arrive in larger and larger numbers so things are starting to look very good on the vaccination front good to hear okay keith thanks very much COVID-19 hospitalizations across BC show that every health region in the province is getting perilously close to full occupancy John Waugh shows us how the growing numbers could affect surgeries and other procedures. Like many, Al McIntyre and his wife thought they had done everything right. We were so careful and we, my wife and I were both got sick at the same time. Uh, we were taken to the VGH here to the ICU. It's here COVID-19 has kept the couple for the past three weeks. At one point leaving the 69-year-old clinging to life. And then when I was intubated, they separated us. And I, I, I thought I'd never see her again. The number of patients forced into hospital beds by this brutal virus continues to rise, adding pressure to a health care system that's quickly reaching its limit. Compared to January and compared to last April, the situation, the COVID-19 situation in our hospital is significantly more challenging. When it comes to hospital capacity, BC is already on the brink. Right now, only 97 critical care beds are available, 475 in non-critical care. Once we cross the line into surge capacity, that's when everything could shift. This means potentially deferral of surgeries, and you saw that that's happened in the last week, and as well, other procedures. The picture across the province shows the pressure is mounting. Capacity at four out of the six health authorities at 95% or higher. Interior Health already using nearly a quarter of its surge beds. What's happening in hospitals is always affected by what all of us do in communities, and we all have to take action. The province says it will monitor hospital resources daily to make adjustments, including moving patients to other hospitals if needed. One key factor at play, the level of exhaustion felt by frontline medical staff. And they get very discouraged when you've been doing this day in and day out for a year and a half. It wears people down. McIntyre credits the incredible care he received in hospital for making it through what he says felt like hell. If we can't get it right for them, I don't know who the hell we're going to get it right for. While McIntyre is counting down the days to when he can leave this bed, the fact one was available when he needed it most is something he'll never take for granted. John Hua, Global News.
And scenes of potential COVID super spreader events in Vancouver over the weekend are upsetting to a lot of people, the Premier included. John Horgan says it would be the understatement of the year to say he's frustrated. And as Imad Agahi reports, while no tickets were handed out, the beach partiers may not be off the hook yet. Warm weather, police with their hands already full, and perhaps the contents of this garbage can, all a recipe for a potential COVID disaster event. There were approximately two to 300 uh, people who were partying uh, down on English Bay Beach, flagrantly drinking alcohol in public, uh, disobeying social gathering um, guidelines, not wearing masks. Uh, playing music through a large amplifier. It was, it was like a, uh, essentially like a flash mob dance party. That group of people waking up on a Monday morning uh, uh, may want to be very concerned that they could have been exposed sometime over the weekend by all of that yelling and singing and strangers going in and out of their group. On a weekend when many showed they can enjoy the sunshine safely with their own household in groups of three and four. Others proved things can easily get out of hand simply by someone bringing a speaker for impromptu dance parties. Or when groups start increasing to more than a handful. I share the views of the overwhelming majority of British Columbians that it is profoundly disappointing to see behavior of that kind at a time when we are so close to getting out of what has been the worst year of our lives. For the vast majority of people, we're doing a good job. So it's just a handful of folks that are ruining it for all of us. The advice has always been that socialization outside is much safer than indoors. But health officials are stressing there is a clear line not to cross, especially with new variants in the picture. We know uh, from everything we've learned in the last year that walking by somebody or running by somebody is not going to transmit this virus. But yes, if you're sitting and dancing and singing in a group with people, um, we have seen transmission in those settings before and we will see them again. Vancouver police said it was not feasible to find any of the people gathered here to English Bay on Saturday night, but in an interesting turn of events, the VPD also said it has the authority to find people months after an offense has taken place, and what happened here on Saturday night is something the Premier also hinted police could be investigating in the coming weeks. Imad Agahi, Global News. There are fears Metro Vancouver's deadly gang war could be heating up again after a brazen targeted shooting outside a popular restaurant over the weekend. Sarah McDonald now with more on what we know about the victim and other events that night that might be connected. At any given time, the patios and pedestrian traffic in Coal Harbor can be busy. And this past Saturday was no exception. That's when Harpreet Singh Dhaliwal of Abbotsford was gunned down just steps away from innocent bystanders. A firearm equipped with a silencer seen near his body. You couldn't hear any noise. You just heard screaming. Not far away and not long afterwards, another unidentified man was found stabbed as a vehicle connected to an own gang associate crashed with three occupants fleeing on foot and escaping officers. Vancouver police saying on Monday, 31-year-old Dollywall was the intended target of a hit. Uh, we do think that it was a targeted killing. It has all the hallmarks of uh, an intentional killing and we don't believe that there is imminent risk to the public um, as a result of this. However, this was a busy area. 
was hugely busy. A factor rarely taken into account by the criminals fueling the lower mainland gang conflict and the retaliatory violence that typically follows and often heats up as the weather does. The weather gets warmer, more people come outside. That includes everybody, uh, every, everybody going to restaurant patios, people going to the beaches, uh, people running on the seawall. And I imagine it brings uh, some of the criminal element out as well. Investigators Monday wouldn't speak to concerns that Saturday's murder could further fuel an already deadly turf war. Yeah, it's, it's always concerning, but you don't know where it's going to show up. It's just <laughs> very fortunate that no innocent, well, hopefully no innocent bystanders got, got hurt, right? With whoever pulled the trigger here in the city's fifth homicide in four months in front of dozens of witnesses still walking free. Sarah McDonald, Global News. An ambitious plan to build out Metro Vancouver's transportation system, and you get to have a say in it. Should it be sky trains or light rail, buses or bike lanes? You have an opportunity to help make those decisions for a post-COVID world. Next on the News Hour, he's got the world on a string. BC's Yo-Yo Prodigy designs what could be the coolest Yo-Yo ever. That's coming up later. And communication breakdown: the massive outage on the Rogers network and what it'll take to fix it. Right now, though, TransLink is asking for public input to help plan transit expansion over the next 30 years. There are two main options, more SkyTrain lines connecting fast-growing communities or an increase in light rail and bus routes. But as Ted Chernecki reports, these discussions are happening while transit use and revenue have dropped off a cliff during the pandemic. It's hard enough to predict what might happen next month, let alone see what transportation might look like in Metro Vancouver in 2050. But that vision is what the Mayor's Council on Regional Transportation is embarking upon, even though we're still in the grips of a public transit suffocating pandemic. We want to make sure that this plan is informed by some long-term trends that might come out of COVID-19, but, but, uh, but we don't want this to become a, a COVID-19 long-range transportation plan, because if that's the case, it'll get outdated uh, very, very quickly. If there's one thing a pandemic taught us is whatever the plan, it better be adaptable. I think you also have to acknowledge that there will be a population that will need to get to a place of work. And I think that it is trying to ensure that there is as, I think, robust and as adaptable a system possible for that population. The council chair is the first to admit he has no idea how many people will work from home permanently. We won't know this until after the pandemic ends. I don't expect it fully to go back to the way it was before, but I also don't anticipate it to stay fully the way it is right now in terms of working from home. Ridership changes to date haven't changed much at all. When the pandemic hit, it plummeted to under 20% and hasn't really climbed above 40% in almost a year. In fact, the only traffic that's fully recovered is on the bridges. Buses, Handy Dart, SkyTrain, Seabus, and the West Coast Express are all running more than half empty. Automated vehicles aren't just the concept for the future. They're becoming reality. Further electrification of public transit is already underway. Phase two will look into growing automation. And there's the digitization to come, where everything you do and pay for is on your smartphone. 
perhaps not today, but then, <laughs> but into the future. <laughs> but then, of course, today is perhaps as we deal with this, uh, with what's happened with one of the largest mobility networks in, the, in, in Canada, that this touches upon how do we build a level of resiliency? Because you can imagine that if we are 20 years down the road and we now have the fact that one of our mobility networks is completely offline, uh, what happens? Rogers and Fido have been out of service for most of a full day in parts of the country coast to coast. Yet another reason to build adaptability into tomorrow's transit system. Ted Chernacki, Global News. Just ahead, a smaller center with big city problems. It's a disturbing sight for people who want to come downtown and shop. How Nanaimo is fighting back against crime. And another brush fire highlights the danger of these dry conditions. Some major road work happening here and causing delays on the Surrey Delta border, Scott Road and 72nd Avenue. Save time shop online with Save On Foods and swing by for free curbside pickup or have it delivered to your door. Shop faster, shop easier in the Save On Foods app. I'm Trish Jewison in Global One, high above Scott Road and 72nd Avenue. Well, crews are on the scene of a wildfire burning near Merritt that is threatening a number of properties. The Petite Creek wildfire is about 18 kilometers northwest of Merritt and estimated to be about 100 hectares right now. 23 firefighters along with two helicopters are fighting that fire, but limited ground access is making it difficult and strong winds are creating unpredictable and aggressive fire behavior. Evacuation alerts have been put in place for two dozen homes in the Miller Estate subdivision and the small community of Canford. Then the winds picked up. Well, Saturday or Sunday afternoon, the, the winds started through and we got concerned because they were blowing south as well as west and we were watching more smoke. I've got a uh, uh, two pumps up here in my water reservoir. Uh, I've got my hoses all stretched out. I'm ready to to do it all. Like I'll stay to the last as long as I can. The BC Wildfire Service still has this fire classified as out of control, and we certainly hope the best and wish those firefighters the best out there. Meteorologist Christy Gordon joins us now mm-hmm. with a look at the wildfire season and how it's shaping up so far. It does seem like a while since we've had rain. Yes, absolutely. The weather conditions right now are exceptionally dry. And in fact, since the beginning of March, especially across the central and southern parts of the province, here's a look at the departure from normal for March and then... April. Kelowna, as an example, reported the driest March on record, and they haven't seen any rain at all since March 19th. So the number of wildfires have really taken off. We've had 58 wildfires just in the past seven days, and this is well above average for this time of year. But what's really interesting is actually the fire danger rating across the province isn't too bad right now, low to moderate for most regions. Here's the reason why. So when we're looking at fire danger rating and we're looking at fuel moisture, we're actually looking at different layers within the forest floor. And that top layer is the one that's really been drying out in the recent months. And we do have a heightened awareness. But fortunately, over the winter, we did have healthy amounts of precipitation. So as we dig deeper into the forest floor and the organic material, fortunately, there's some healthy amounts of moisture deeper down. Mm Mm-hmm. 
So thankfully, although we're seeing many of those top layer fires like grass fires right now, there's a limit to how far these fires can propagate and in fact, this dry weather has actually been some good news for the fire crews because they've been able to get out there and carry out some of these prescribed burns. And that will help us down the road in reducing that fire danger risk. Oh, that's good stuff. Okay, glad they did some of the uh, preventative work for sure. And we'll check in a little bit later with you as well, Christy, for the forecast. Well, it looks like two of life's necessities, food and shelter, are going to cost you more. A new survey shows Housing costs and grocery prices are now the biggest barriers to food affordability in Canada. Our consumer reporter, Andrew, is here with more on what you need to know. Anne? Thanks, Chris. It's not often that we see unemployment, rising food prices, and housing costs significantly affecting the population at the same time. Experts say it's happening now, and Canadians are feeling the pressure more than a year into the global pandemic. A recent poll in partnership with Food Banks Canada found 46% or almost half of Canadians consider the cost of housing to be the largest obstacle to being able to afford food. That's up from just 21% a year ago. 42% of Canadians surveyed say the cost of food is now the largest barrier to being able to afford it, up from 26% 12 months ago. At the start of the global pandemic, a rising unemployment was seen by 71% of Canadians as the largest stumbling block to food affordability. A year later, that number dropped to 42%, while 46% of Canadians polled viewed household debt as the largest hurdle to buying food last year. That figure is now down to 31%. There's a perfect economic storm happening. Typically, you would have one uh, necessity of life uh, rising, uh, becoming more expensive, uh, whether it's shelter or food or, or perhaps wages that aren't necessarily uh, moving at all. Right now, all three of them are affecting Canadians. House prices are going up, which, uh, of course, uh, homeowners don't mind. But it will impact affordability eventually since people will have to put, pay more for rents or mortgage, uh, eventually have less to spend on food. Now here in B.C., while well, Vancouver is known for its skyrocketing housing prices, Charles Lebois says compared to the rest of the country, food prices in our province aren't going up as much. But he notes they were already high. As we've mentioned, Canadian food prices are expected to rise by as much as 5% this year. The cost of food, which was perceived as the main barrier to food affordability for at least five years, is now shifting because of our red-hot real estate market. And if you have a consumer issue for me, you can always email me at consumermatters at globalnews.ca. All right, and thank you. Facing a major increase in mental health and drug-related incidents and crime in the city's downtown, Nanaimo Council is now planning to spend hundreds of thousands of dollars to beef up security in the area. Kylie Stanton reports. So this gate goes all the way across here. Despite the added security, the thieves keep coming back. It's not... A criminal enterprise, it's more of a break a window, smash and grab, see what you can get. Bruce Milligan's downtown Nanaimo business has been dealing with repeated break-ins for months now. What seems to go hand in hand with the city's growing homeless problem. It's a disturbing sight for people who want to come downtown and shop. It's disturbing for people who are working in the shops who feel that their safety is threatened at times by some of these individuals. And it's just kind of a confused and... Um, 
really difficult to solve situation right now. But mayor and council have a plan. It's spending $400,000 to ramp up security throughout the downtown core, supplementing bylaw enforcement and other measures already in place. The $400,000 is what we have to do now in order to provide security today and over the next few months. The city has been coping with increasing violence, open drug use and crime. A situation stemming from the mental health and addictions crisis affecting so many communities across the province. And now only exacerbated by the pandemic. But residents say it's going to take much more than added security to solve the problem. They need rehabilitation services. They need drug programs. And maybe getting people housed and access to services would be the answer compared to policing it. The issue, those things are not in the city's jurisdiction. And even if they were, it doesn't have the money to make a dent. You're talking tens of millions of dollars and we need the province to step up to the plate, which they are in large measure doing, but it's going to take a long time. The hope is to see more of a commitment in the provincial budget coming down Tuesday. In the meantime, owners like Milligan are welcoming the help. At this point, they'll take whatever they can get. Hopefully it'll just stop my business from being broken into. Kylie Stanton, Global News. Drama at the Meng Wanzhou extradition hearing where her lawyers want a three-month delay in proceedings. That's next on the News Hour, And a federal budget that borrows heavily from future generations to get the economy going again. Believe BC, featured on Global News Hour at 6, celebrates the innovative minds working together to reignite business throughout our province. Believe BC, brought to you in part by the BCTF, our kids and their teachers, worth investing in. Good evening. Counterflow is out here at the Massey Tunnel and traffic is in great shape in both directions. Time to renew your home insurance? Switch to BCAA for local knowledge, customized coverage and valuable ways to save. Visit BCAA.com. I'm Trish Jewison in Global One at the Massey Tunnel. The federal government unveiled an historic budget today. It's first in two years with more than $101 billion in new spending to support the country through COVID and stimulate economic recovery. Global's Mike LeCouture has the details. It's a big budget with $101 billion in stimulus spending over the next three years to help get Canada's economy back on track as we emerge from the pandemic. But to do that, the government is extending the emergency wage and rent subsidy programs until September when all Canadians are expected to be vaccinated. This is the first budget in our history presented by a woman and Finance Minister Christian Freeland is keenly focused on the she covery. Central to that is a national child care plan to make it easier for women to be in the workforce. Our goal is that within five years, families everywhere in Canada should have access to high-quality daycare for an average of $10 a day. The subsidized plan will mirror Quebec's and will cost $30 billion over the next five years. It will also require negotiations with the provinces, which could be tricky. It's going to take time to actually pull this off and time further still to see a result of this type of programming. Childcare is the centerpiece of the budget, but there are other large spending commitments. $3 billion to improve long-term care homes, $17.6 billion for so-called green recovery initiatives, and a new investment of $18 billion for Indigenous communities. 
Now, all of this spending will push the national debt past the $1 trillion mark for the first time in our history, with the deficit for the last fiscal year sitting at about $354 billion. Now, our debt-to-GDP level was 30% before the pandemic. All of this spending will push it to 50% this year and for the next five years. The worst case scenarios don't kind of feel like a real worst case. So I don't think we've tested the outer bounds of what risk could look like. The real test of this budget will be whether or not it gets the support of at least one opposition party to avoid triggering a federal election. Mike LeCouture, Global News, Ottawa. More legal drama today at the extradition hearing for Huawei executive Meng Wanzhou in Vancouver. Her lawyers are asking for a delay in order to review documents they say could turn the case on its head. Grace Key reports. Huawei executive Meng Wanzhou is asking for an adjournment. Defense wants more time to review HSBC documents released by a Hong Kong court. Documents it says are relevant to the extradition case. Crown argues the documents aren't even in Canada yet and shouldn't be considered for extradition. These mysterious documents are good in a criminal trial, but not extradition. To extradite, it's a low standard. The Crown's got to get over the charter. It's the charter argument. What happened in Vancouver Airport? That's the key. Meng was arrested at Vancouver International Airport in 2018 at the request of the United States, where she faces fraud charges. Defense argues her rights were violated during the arrest. She's accused of lying to HSBC regarding Huawei's control over another company, putting the bank at risk of violating U.S. sanctions against Iran. If these documents are key, exculpatory, and go to the root of this extradition, authorization to proceed, defense has a shot. But if they're like everything else from Hong Kong, U.S. against Huawei, blaming HSBC, been there, seen it, done it. So has the court. And that motion to postpone things again will likely not be granted. The proceedings are scheduled to resume on April 26. Defense is proposing an adjournment for August 3rd. The judge will come back with a decision on Wednesday. Grace Key, Global News. Ontario's interprovincial travel restrictions are now in effect in an effort to contain a devastating third wave of COVID there. Checkpoints have been set up at the borders with Manitoba and Quebec. Anybody caught trying to enter Ontario without a valid reason will be turned away. That as the federal government is sending more health care workers and rapid tests to the province, Ontario is reporting record numbers of people in hospital and the ICU struggling with COVID-19. Still ahead, business is up and not down for a yo-yo prodigy. Modern yo-yos are made out of aircraft-grade aluminum. How Harrison Lee turned his passion into a new sellout product. And how a late-night ride led to a tussle with coyotes in Stanley Park. There was yet another coyote attack in Stanley Park over the weekend. This one as disturbing as the others. Police say a 44-year-old man was riding his electric scooter on the seawall just before midnight on Sunday, somewhere between Lumberman's Arch and the bridge. He hit a coyote fell off and injured his collarbone. While he was laying on the ground, two coyotes actually began tugging at his clothes. He punched one of the animals and flagged over a passerby to call 911. The BC Conservation Service is warning people about aggressive coyotes in Stanley Park, saying they are more active at dawn 
and dusk. After midnight, too, apparently. Okay, what a beautiful day for a ride anywhere out in that sunshine again. But all good things must come to an end. Here's Christy with the details. <laughs> That's right. We'll talk about when this finally, this upper level ridge will break down in a second. But first, uh, we've had 10 days of dry weather here at Metro Vancouver, and it, it seems to just keep on going. Uh, here's a quick look at the concerns, though, across the province. We talked about the wildfire situation, but we also have flood concerns because we're getting so much snowmelt right now. So a flood warning for the Nazco River right now and a flood watch for the San Jose River. Now, as we head into the next couple of days, the temperatures will start to come down. So we'll start to see a little bit less melt but there is concern as we head towards late week that the overnight temperatures will start to climb that means that we will continue to see snow melt in the overnight period as well so that's a bit of a concern for the bc river forecast center over the next few days so they'll be watching those regions that's for sure these are the daytime highs for today not the heat that we saw the last few days but i tell you it's still really hot out here low 20s is nothing to sneeze at for april and upper teens and through the interior regions now tomorrow for the interior you're to see a slight increase in temperature tons of sunshine right across the board once again whereas coastal regions will see similar temperatures to what we're seeing today and we'll see that on wednesday as well so we're talking about two more days of heat whereas thursday is going to be a bit of a transition day we'll see a little bit more cloud cover temperatures may come down a little bit but as you said all good things must come to an end and it looks like friday is the end for us wish a few showers then and then periods of rain on saturday and i'll leave you with tonight's central windows weather window uh, the northern lights were spotted right across the province today or this weekend I should say a big and some would say surprising win by the Canucks last night I would have to say so we'll talk about the win in a second but now something from the win last night Alex Edler sent uh, lease forward Zach Hyman to the injured list for two weeks after a knee on knee hit but Toronto can't go after Edler in the rematch tomorrow because Edler was suspended for two games. No doubt, this is a bad look for Edler, who has been suspended twice before in his career, but not since 2013, so he's considered rehabilitated, not a repeat offender. Uh, Travis Green says he didn't think it was intentional, but it certainly doesn't look like an accident either. Well, it was a game the Vancouver Canucks were not supposed to win. All that time off with COVID, then having to play the top team in the division, it needed some extra special efforts. Everybody gave one, but Braden Holtby and Bo Horvat's efforts were really above and beyond the call of duty. Then back to Horvat. He's got some room, and he comes with a shot. Scores! I mean, obviously, to, to score, score that goal and, and to get the win for, for the guys, and not only the guys, the organization, the, our families, um, no, it definitely felt great. Great on so many levels. Canucks playing their first game in 25 days and still far from being in 100% game shape. Majority of Vancouver's roster spending the last two weeks isolated at home dealing with COVID. But the biggest moral victory was earned between the pipes by Braden Holtby. Played it to Robertson, back to Simmons. Great check by Holtby. Holtby delivering his best performance of the season, turning aside 37 of 39 shots. A great save. You know, he, he does that sometimes in practice and... Um, you know, to see it live in a game, it was uh, it was pretty funny actually. Um, yeah, we always we always tease him to do it when he does stuff like that in practice, and to pull it off in a game was uh, was pretty special. So he made like four or five of those tonight, honestly, and um, he played incredible. And I don't think you can just look at one save um, tonight. He was he was you know kept us in at, at times for sure. Holtby's first star performance is the kind of effort the Canucks were hoping to see more of 
when they signed the veteran to a two-year contract worth $4.3 million a season. But it just hasn't happened enough this year for the Canucks or Holtby, who had become one of the most expensive NHL backups. You know, he's such a good person. He's been, uh, he has had a bit of a rough year this year. Uh, probably not the, the year he's wanted, but we've, we've tried to stand by him and believe in him, and we, and we do. And, uh, you know, he was one of the first guys I talked to after the game tonight. I was proud of him tonight, the way he played. Uh, to beat a team like Toronto uh, on, on, with how long we've been out, you're going to need a performance from your goalie. And uh, he gave us an all-star uh, Holtby performance tonight. And with Thatcher Demko's playing status still unknown, the Canucks are going to need more Holtby crease crusades in the weeks to come. And maybe, just maybe, the Seattle Kraken will take notice as well. Jay Janor, Global Sports. From the moment he was drafted second overall out of Seattle in 1997 until now, Patrick Marlowe has been a constant in the NHL. He's rarely missed a game. In fact, he's only missed 2% of all regular season games he's been eligible to play. And tonight against Vegas, he's going to pass Gordie Howe and hold the record for most NHL regular season games played. And this is the list if you're wondering. And we'll give the game now to Marlowe. So he is ahead of Gordie Howe, Messier, Yager, and Francis. I hate the rain in his parade, but on that list, he's the only guy who hasn't won the Stanley Cup. And if Howe had not left for the WHA and Yager hadn't left for Europe for a while, Marlowe wouldn't be the guy, but he is the guy, so let's give him that. All right, last night, Whitecaps in Portland. Canucks shouldn't have won their game, according to experts, and neither should the Whitecaps. They were not favored to beat Portland, but Lucas Cavallini got the only goal, and Vancouver wins its opener and gets a shutout as well, 1-0. Since I've been here, the five years that I've been here, I don't think a pundit has ever picked us to go to the playoffs or to do well. We come out, we play really well, we play really strong, we get a shutout. I think it just shows how strong this group is and how strong it can be. And next up for the Whitecaps is Toronto on Saturday. There you go. All right. Thank you, Squire. We'll toss it over to Jay Durant now with a preview of Global News at 11 tonight. Jay. Thank you, Chris. We'll have more reaction to the travel restrictions announced earlier today. The B.C. Civil Liberties Association has many questions, including how police will enforce the restrictions. We'll also hear from the tourism industry. And a wild ride on the Kootenai Lake Ferry. How the crew managed to navigate its way through this storm, getting everybody to the other side safely. Those stories coming up tonight at 11, Chris. Kootenai Lake, just to clarify. Not the open ocean. Amazing. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. All right, thanks very much, Jay. When we come back, a yo-yo prodigy takes things very seriously. Don't call it a toy. That's next. Virus here with more than you probably ever thought you'd learn about yo-yoing. Well, especially yo-yoing in the 21st century. A lot of us of a certain vintage, I'm talking about people in their 30s, <laughs> um, you know, they know the yo-yo. Wait, you'd make, do a little, what, rock the baby or just walk the dog, some just simple little walk trick. The dog. Yeah. Exactly. It's a lot different now. And uh, we have one of the best in our midst in Harrison Lee. There was a time these kind of tricks were considered the height of yo-yo expertise. But in the 21st century, yo-yo tricks have advanced. And Vancouver's Harrison Lee is one of the best in the world at these tricks. Yeah, so I've been, been playing with the yo-yo for about 10 years now. Um, got into it about grade six, grade seven. 
Um, it was a fad at my school, but you know, like any fad or hobby in middle school, people begin to lose interest. Uh, but I kept kept yo-yoing. To the point where Harrison not only became a multiple Canadian champion, but a designer of yo-yos as well. And designing yo-yos is not a simple process. Modern yo-yos are made out of aircraft-grade aluminum. And inside yo-yos, actually, uh, they have ball bearings, uh, which allows them to spin for a really, really long time. Harrison's first design, called the Orca with Canadian company Caribou Lodge, was released in 2015. His latest is the Otter. This is the Otter. Which is designed to expand the number of trick possibilities. That required the yo-yo being much smaller, uh, being a lot more nimble, and to spin for a really long time as well. Harrison Lee is someone the yo-yo industry was lucky to find, and he was lucky to find yo-yos. What has kept me yo-yoing for so long is that, you know, I'm a very naturally fidgety person. Uh, you can kind of get lost in it. You know, you're just playing with the string at the end of the day, and it's like, oh, what shapes can I make? How can I manipulate the yo-yo in different ways? See, if I did that, at some point, I'd have the whole thing around my neck, and we'd have to call the fire department. <laughs> I know. It would be a tangled mess, and Me uh, as the father of a nine-year-old boy, I've, I've had to undo my fair share of knots, too, but uh, great for Harrison for sharing that story with us, and good luck with sales of the otter. Sounds really cool. All right, last word before we go to you, Christy. All right, dropping down to 8 tonight, 17 to 20 as our highs for tomorrow. Two more days of sunshine before we start to see a bit of change. Let's get out and enjoy them. Thanks, everybody. See you tomorrow.